Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. So this is episode 10 of Happy... Number 10. It is, of Happy Path Programming. So, Which only um, matters because we have 10 fingers, right? Probably something like that, you know? Yeah, Base it's, 10. It's a historical thing. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it probably does come down to that. Um, so just kind of along the lines of our theme, our overarching theme, I've been thinking about what the next big jump forward might be, which a lot of times we only see in hindsight, but you know, yeah. we can, we can still guess and look in our crystal ball. Yeah. To see what, what is going to make a huge change in programming? Yeah. What it's like to, I mean, cause there are things like you look at the internet and it used to be that we had to wait for books to come out right. and magazines. And then we'd pour over the articles and understand something new. But if we had a question, boy, sometimes it would take a lot of digging to answer that question. And now we've going got through microfilm and microfiche kind of, <laughs> yeah, things like that, you know, and now we've got, do you remember the difference between microfilm and microfiche? Isn't that, am I saying that right? Microfiche? <sighs> yeah, I do not. Yeah, I, I do not. It's like I knew it at one point. Right. I it knew was... how to use like, what's the, what's the library book lookup system? Dewey Decimal the Dewey System. Dewey Decimal System. Yeah. I used to know how to use that now. Yeah. And now it's like, well, you could probably guess. You could probably recover it somehow in your brain. But, yeah. but there are things that we have now that there are things that I know how to do, but I go, I just need a little reminder. So I'll type it in and look it up. And yeah, I was right. Yeah. You know, and, and whereas before it was like, no, got to dig it out of your brain, figure it out from scratch, make sure you remembered it correctly. Yeah. But I'm thinking, so the two things that I think could have a big impact are um, the, the first thing is... <sighs> Are, we, are you thinking like like five years out, ten years out? Like how? Well, you know, time is is hard yeah, now because right we're talking look at it through. we're talking about the computer world and how things move forward, and so I guess and so the first thing that I have thought of is not having to think about efficiency. Yeah, and because we do now, and there's a lot of people who don't who get into programming and don't learn about efficiency, probably. Yeah, I mean, when I was learning assembly, we were very concerned with how many ticks on the CPU was this operation. And you're really trying to eke out every last bit of ticking on the CPU you possibly And memory. Could. And memory. Memory was super, you know, we, and, and the re, I would argue the reason we have variables is because we need to conserve memory. Yeah. Whereas if you think of programming, you know, without, with invariant programming, you go, oh no, I don't reuse this memory. I make something new. Well, that's very wasteful, Yeah. but it's very helpful at the same time. You know, yeah, it's wasteful. And, but if you have plenty of memory, then conserving memory is a bad use of your time. Yeah. What's interesting is that what comes to mind is how at some point we decided that we needed to separate our logic from our data. Is, is that the right way to frame that? I'm trying to remember the exact, like yeah. we have our program and us as developers write our programs, but they're abstracted from the actual data that they operate on when we write the program. And what that means is that we as the programmer have to think about how much memory does this thing use? Or I think even at some points, like how much, uh, how much work is the CPU going to have to do uh, to, to accomplish this task? So we as the developers are thinking about those things, but we're not actually operating in the context of the data that we're going to be actually dealing with. And so we kind of have to make some assumptions about how big things are going to be or how long they're going to take when we're writing the code, but we're supposed to be abstracted from that data. And so today, uh, just an example is you, you are operating on a list of things 
And you have to make some assumptions about how big that list is. Is it too big for me to fit into what the space that I have available or is it not? But we're supposed to be abstracted from that, but we're not like, like it's this leaky abstraction where we do have to think about size of the data. And so I think to your point, at some point, hopefully we can program without having to think about those things and our programs will be able to, to know how to handle it. So for instance, we'll program in a way they'll say, Oh, this is way too much data for me to operate on, on this one node. I need to now distribute this processing across multiple nodes and do it. But we as a developer shouldn't have to make that decision. Yeah. Python has uh, <clears throat> generator expressions, which look like, for example, you could, you could write a list comprehension and you produce a list all at once, or you could change the square brackets to uh, uh, parentheses and it becomes a generator expression, everything else is the same, but it's only creating the, the elements as you need them. Yeah. And that feels kind a lot of the difference between streams and lists. Yes, exactly. And Very much today. You, you as the developer have to decide, am I going <clears> to <throat> operate on this thing as a stream or am I going to operate it on as a, as a list? It's like, why do I have to make that decision? Right. It seems like the language, I mean, I think if people were thinking about it back then, they would have said, well, why don't we just make, you know, anytime you would get, make a list, we'll make it a generator expression instead of uh, yeah. a list. But but we had to, I mean, like in Python, we had to get to the point of people understanding list comprehensions, which were introduced, I think, only in Python 3, if I remember correctly. Um, and then once you, once you go, oh, list comprehensions, sure. Oh, now we can change that to be a generator expression. So it's been this sort of evolution. And if we were to create a programming language from scratch, we might not say, oh, there are two different things in yeah. this case. And yeah, and that's, I think it's a good example. And I think maybe it even goes back to assembly language because we clearly had, oh, here's your, here's your RAM, yeah. you know, and, and here's your ROM and the two had to be different and now they don't, but we're still carrying the baggage from the thinking that way yeah. because the languages or, and I, I, I don't know if I mentioned it to you like when Pascal was, was created. One of the big deals was to create it, design it so that it was a single pass compiler for right. speed. And so, you know, that was that, that changed the way you thought about programming yeah. for a thing that we don't think about anymore. Yeah. 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 And then another, another dimension of this is time and how long things take. And so Today, all the rage is like reactive programming and, and demarcating asynchronous things. But it's in some ways like something the developer shouldn't have to think about because you could you could take every operation and say this is essentially asynchronous. I think what we've done is said like, OK, if I'm talking to the network, I know that that's going to take a long time. And so that should be asynchronous. But what does that long time mean? Like 100 milliseconds, 10 milliseconds, 50 milliseconds. Why isn't everything that takes one millisecond asynchronous? You know, so I think we've we've essentially made some boundaries around, OK, here's generally how long these things take. And so this is synchronous and this is asynchronous when it's we shouldn't we shouldn't have to make those distinctions like our the underlying processing should be able to handle all these things. And this is where I think like loom, uh, is going with on the, on the JVM with the bringing back green threads essentially to the JVM and making it so the developer shouldn't have to care. Yeah. Any kind of concurrency is a big burden because, you know, part of the problem is that you have to figure out not only do I even need to use concurrency here and, you know, sometimes people use it when they don't need it or and then it's what strategy am i going to use to to solve this concurrency issue and all of those things like if you're not if you don't have that issue you just say here's what my program should do and you don't even think about it yeah. and that's very liberating yeah yeah concurrency just uh, yeah. bogs you down in yeah. so many different ways yeah so that's that's one one thing I'd, I'd like us to not have to, oh, um, 
No, uh, what is it? It's not Elm, but um, Julia. Julia. Yeah. yeah, Julia does a lot of things so that the programmer doesn't have to think about concurrency. Yeah. And that's... that's and ultimately, really... concurrency is about resource utilization in that, in that way. And so to your point, I think, yeah, like at some point we hopefully will be able to program without thinking about resources. That's a more general way of putting what I was wanting to say. Yes, not having to think about resources. Yeah, so resources mostly being CPU and RAM, but there are other things that would probably fall into that, that bucket. Well, well, all kinds of things. I mean, if you look at the way that um, uh, web systems have changed, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that if you wanted to put up a website and you thought it might go you know, a lot of people might start using it. You had to build your own server farm. And now, you know, to resources first, and you didn't even know if you were going to be successful. Yeah. And now you can put something up there. And if it starts to get successful, it just, you know, acquires more resources as it needs it. Yeah. So we're, we're definitely getting closer to that. Yeah. I think the programming models do have to change to support this. Absolutely. Because the programming models we have today I, they're, they're so, um, most of them that I work with are so dependent on sp specific resources mm -hmm. and, and really propagates that stuff to the developer. Oh yeah. Yeah. Your, your, your thinking is bound yeah. by that. Yeah. And it's, it, it could be liberating to not have to we, think about that. We do see, I think. Uh, the places where I've seen programming languages start to step away from this is uh, Unison for sure, mm -hmm. uh, and then Pony. We've talked about both of those before, but mm -hmm. both of those kind of fundamentally change the programming model in ways that that I think step us towards not having to have the propagation of resource constraints to our our programs. Well, and look at garbage collection, which was really, I guess, strongly popular. I mean, Python had it before Java did, and it existed in some other languages, but Java brought it into the mainstream. Before Java, people just said, oh, no, garbage collection is too expensive. We could never do that. Joey from WTF pointed out from one of our previous episodes that we didn't talk about Smalltalk, and Smalltalk as being one of the first places where garbage collection was, was used. So I'd never use Smalltalk. So I, I tried, but it was so expensive to get a Smalltalk system yeah. at the time. It was back when you still had to pay for... People are actually using Smalltalk today for production mm -hmm. stuff. I think Squeak is the the open source Smalltalk. Yeah, it's been around that. for a long time. And then I there's think some there web, might be web framework on top of Squeak mm -hmm. or something. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's... Sometime, there, yeah, yeah. And, well, and... and um, the, the Japanese language, um, Ruby. Uh, yeah, Ruby was in, influenced by Smalltalk. Yeah. Huh. So, yeah. so there are there are examples of that. So back to your point, garbage collectors freed us from having to think about memory allocation and deallocation. Right. So that was a good step into mm -hmm. moving us away from programming models that that propagated resource stuff to the developer right and we've talked about error handling and you know the issues around that and the fact that most people well it's kind of the title of the podcast refers to the fact that most people don't think about errors they they go well it's it won't happen to me yeah yeah and so they they pretend that error handling isn't an issue the other thing that i think is going to make an impact is I don't know if I want to call it, I, I guess I'd just say machine learning applied to programming. Hmm. And there's a tool that has been being developed for um, for Python called Sorcery, okay. S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y. Huh. And um, you can install it, or at least I've got it installed on PyCharm. And then what it'll do is it'll see you know, little pieces of code that you've written and it goes, ah, there's a better way to do that. Uh, and, cool. you know, should I rewrite that for you? Huh. <clears throat> and so it's just the very beginning. Yeah. But I found not only has it, um, well, improved my code in general, but it has introduced some ideas to me that, you know, maybe I 
haven't completely internalized or I didn't think about. And I go, oh yeah, I could do it this this better way yeah. because it's kind of helping you. It's sort of as if uh, Stack Overflow would be intruding into your programming experience instead of you having to go out and ask Stack right. Overflow. It's going, oh, yeah. here's a here's a thing I can do. Yeah. So I've I thought about that for <clears throat> for refactoring. Mm. Refactoring. One one reason that we're so held back as a as programmers is that there's a huge cost to to moving on to newer versions of things. So like Scala three is going to come out in a little while, and people with large Scala code bases I think are going to generally have a hard time migrating to Scala three. There's going to be code that needs to be rewritten. They've worked on some tooling to help make it easier, but this is, I think, such a great place to apply AI. And I think that we have the 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 training data on GitHub to teach a model how to refactor from one version of whatever to a newer version of whatever. And it'd be really interesting to see, like, could this help us move forward faster with adopting new technology faster? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I can imagine somebody creating a new language along with and, and Kotlin has done this a little bit like you can take your Java code and you can put it into IntelliJ and it'll say, you know, it'll rewrite it for you in, into Kotlin. And I think yeah. that's very helpful. But I could see somebody designing a language that with translators. Yeah. So you could just say, OK, here's my. Java code base, and now I want it in this new language. And think about how much faster that would make adoption. Yeah. You know, it would just be like, okay, we can we can yeah. switch to this overnight. Yeah. And yeah, even like trivial migrations can be such a challenge sometimes. So in the world of Scala, I've used Play Framework for years and years, and and Play Framework has been really bad at just changing things every single major release and you mean breaking changes yeah oh yeah api changes um configuration changes just just change it changes in how you do things like they moved from a iterative based streams to an aka based streams and um just kind of changing paradigms as they evolve which is great like i want play to be able in any framework to be able to evolve any library to be able to evolve but it it was a huge challenge even to take small code bases and migrate them forward and i think that what happened was people just generally don't and so then you've got this huge tail of people on your old stuff not adopting your new stuff and it's just weird that as a programming community, we haven't really thought through, like, how do we evolve and bring people with us? And I think that, that AI is probably a key to that, um, but haven't seen anybody really, really uh, do much with that idea. So do you think that, because my impression of Scala is that it's kind of the we're doing experiments we're leading the pack by trying a bunch of things out and that you know other languages well certainly kotlin adopted lots of experiments that scala did and so that attitude impacted play to the point where they're going yeah we don't want to feel stuck we want to do it right yep. and doing it right means oh well if i made a mistake here yep. we're going to fix it fix it yeah. and <clears throat> backwards compatibility yeah no, out the window. Yeah, I think there is a very heavy cultural value in the Scala community of doing experiments and trying to get it right. And yeah, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to have to fix those. And and so, yeah, I think that's why Play Framework differs so much in that way from like Spring Boot and Spring Framework. Like Spring Framework over the last, I don't know, 10 years has had very few breaking changes to the framework. Um, I, I, it's even hard to think of them. Whereas with play, mm -hmm. I can think of dozens off the top of my head. And so, uh, so very different kind of core value between the two communities. And I think where that comes from is that Scala, uh, in, in part comes out of EPFL where there are, there are 
doctoral, postdoctoral <clears throat> students that are that are doing these experiments, trying to find the better solutions. And I really appreciate that there are people doing that, but it definitely leads to a level of churn that can be hard for users to keep up with. Uh, and and I, I, I think that tooling and maybe AI as part of that tooling is the way to address that. Yeah, you have to be, well, either that or just acknowledge that, okay, <clears throat> if you're going to live in this world, it's going to be changing and that's the world you're signing up for. Yeah. And, and you know, then there's these other worlds that say, I don't want my web framework to be changing constantly. I, I want to be able to put something up and not worry that it's going to get broken, yeah. which is probably a larger portion but then that's enterprise <clears throat> yeah it's enterprise. enterprise once enterprise has something working it's like okay mm -hmm. don't touch it i mean you know, keep I that mainframe system running for 50 years whatever i mean there's a bunch of things that i do that that's not my main interest you know websites for example i use static site generators i use hugo and <clears throat> i don't want that to change i want to be able to do because that Right. It's not my goal to be experimenting with those things. I just yeah, want to see would be if you went and like updated Hugo and then all of a sudden you had to go through all of your past uh, articles in your Hugo site and update them because some API changed. That would be frustrating. Yeah, for sure. I, I wouldn't. But tooling could do that for you if there was investment mm -hmm. into that tooling. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I had to do something like that, I would write a tool to do it. You know, I, I don't trust doing things by hand. If it's toolable. If it's tool. Well, yeah. I, 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 I wrote a tool to migrate, help me migrate my WordPress blog to Hugo. And there were so many corner cases. It was just, oh my God. At some point I was just like, I cannot address all these corner cases. And so there's just going to be some old blog posts about flex that are not going to be formatted correctly. Oh, well, I'm in the process of taking thinking in Java, which is a word document and turning it into a lean pub uh, format. And there are lots of special cases and things. And I've, I've had some experience with this kind of thing before, but <clears throat> it's actually a really intriguing puzzle because there are some things that you go all right i can't do this um you know i can't completely automate this thing so i'm going to use a totally different strategy and it's been kind of expanding my brain yeah. to uh, like tables are a real problem some of the tables <laughs> convert correctly because i'm using pandoc to go yeah. from the word document to the initial markdown and then I have to convert that to something that LeanPub will understand. And some of the tables convert and others of them seem to end up as uh, HTML formatted things. I'm not sure why. Huh. And so I finally decided, okay, well, the table thing, I'm just going to create a list of tables and do those by hand and then automatically substitute them. Yeah. And it's kind of an interesting, different strategy to take. Huh. And you realize, hey, yeah, there's 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 all kinds of approaches. It, I don't know. It's it's a messy problem, and yet I'm getting satisfaction out of solving it. So, nice. um, so did you have any other ideas about like what might move us forward? Yeah, big time. I I think some of it is like the 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 happy path that we've talked about a lot, like making it making it easier to program on the happy path, but make that happy path match reality. Mm -hmm. um, so so I definitely agree with you on that one. The other one that that comes to mind is that I think that there's a gap between uh, just generally the easy way and the right way, mm. and I think that. <clears throat> I think that those things are converging. So just as an example for this, uh, just this morning I was working with somebody on a video where in IntelliJ they want to be able to like click a couple buttons, create a project, click a couple more buttons, have it deploy to Cloud Run. And it's like, oh, that's so easy. But it's totally the wrong way to do things. Mm -hmm. Like you, if you're doing something real, like you should never do stuff that way. Like there's, you should be setting up a CI CD pipeline and you should never be like 
creating the thing that you deploy on your local machine. You should be having a CI/CD system do that. And so, so in that scenario, there's a huge gap. And if I think about, okay, if I want to show them the right way, we're talking about like a hundred steps versus like five steps. And so just in that one example, there's this huge gap between the easy way and the right way. And so part of what I've tried to do in a lot of places is try to bring convergence to those, make the right way, the easy way. And, and so that's what I did with something called cloud run button was cloud run button is not, it, it is, it is the easy way to get started with, uh, with a service called cloud run, but underneath the covers, it's showing you, here's what we did. So it's just automating some steps for you, uh, to kind of peel back the, the curtain on the right way. Uh, and, but not, not make, not create a whole different way is I think where, where I want to see convergence is let's make the right way, the easy way too. Yeah. Cause it really can get very overwhelming fast. You know, somebody goes, I just want to create a website and right. then pretty soon there's all these special cases and corner issues and things that you yep. have to deal with. I, one of the first things that I did <clears throat> professionally when I was working for companies was I needed to make a, floating point math library in the assembly language that we were using for this multimeter. <laughs> and so I dug in and learned all these things, which I cannot remember at this point about, you know, how does floating point math work and what is the IEEE 488 oh, standard wow. or something like that and created this library. I'm still kind of amazed that I did that anyway. So I had in my head, I had all the mechanisms of the low level stuff that was going on in the efficiencies and everything. And so when I was starting to do more high level programming, that was still there. And I was, I would look at something and go, well, that wouldn't be efficient. I need to do it this hard way to make it more efficient. And it was a long time before I started realizing that at least some languages, the easy way was the right way because, well, even in Python, I would do things where I would, I would write a lot of code because I was thinking, well, this is more efficient. And then I discovered that, no, if you just do it the simple way, it's often faster than doing it the way yeah. that is in your head. Yeah. And, and, oh, that was, that was very enlightening. Just yeah. the, the beliefs that we have that we know better. That's right. Yeah. So defining what the, the right way is can be hard because it, we may be bringing a lot of baggage with us to define what we think is the right way. Uh, yeah, so deciding what is the right way is, is definitely a challenge. So you mentioned that you were working on a presentation or a... Yeah, so switching gears if switching you want Switching gears, yes. Yeah. Um, to, tomorrow I'm doing a presentation about Intersource. So Intersource is the idea of taking the ideas of open source to corporations or, or organizations so that you try to create a culture that works like you would in open source, but does it for a code that's not publicly available. And so the, I haven't given you any prep on this. So I'm, I'm curious, um, what off the top of your head, hearing the word inner source, like what would you see as some of the values for bringing, bringing what the way that we do things of open source into the kind of corporate world? Well, I mean, the first thing that pops into my head is, so to give a little background, I, I spent a bunch of years studying organizational structures and trying to find better ways to do it. And uh, that's how I ended up uh, finding this book, um, Reinventing Organizations, which talks about flat organizations and, uh, you know, how you would create them. And one of the things that I haven't ever been able to get around is this idea, and they, they don't really talk about it in this book, um, is, well, how would you take an existing hierarchical, patriarchal organization and change it into a flat organization? And the real problem is that you're telling somebody who maybe spent their life working themselves into a position of power. First thing you have to do is give up that power that your life has been around. And I don't see that 
happening in an existing structure. So my initial reaction to you saying, well, let's use this. I mean, because basically you're talking about a relatively flat thing. I mean, you do have the gatekeeper who decides or keepers who decide whether pull requests are going to be accepted or not. But ultimately everything else is, you know, distributed and flat and not managed. And so how do you, you know, what do you do with a manager in this situation who that's their raison d'etre? Right. Um, and I think they're going to push back and say, well, my life has no meaning in your new system. So I don't what like do you need it. Me for? <laughs> well, and I think this is the problem that we've had trying to bring um, Agile into organizations because, in a sense, it does, it changes the management role mm. to something that's unfamiliar. So my. A new system can be a threat to you. <laughs> oh, a new system, I think, is always yeah. uh, going to be a threat. As, but in particular, if it's taking somebody's power away. Yeah and or or having them give up their power then yeah. you, that's that's going to be your main struggle and I, I mean i think that's you know why agile has had such a hard time and yeah. why our, our friend barry has had such a you know tough time bringing it in is because it requires it's an organizational change yeah. and it's 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 creating a new kind of organization that's the thing and i think that's what you're you're suggesting here and so how do you that and i and i think one of the problems with agile is that they said here's the way you should do it and not how do we get from here to there that they didn't really address and i think ultimately i mean it's kind of like what we talk about when we when we talk about changing things in languages you're talking about a cultural change and how do you get there and so many things have failed because they didn't recognize where they didn't recognize from. that there's a transition necessary yeah. and sometimes that transition can be well bloody even yeah yeah so uh, yeah that's super helpful for me i need to talk make sure i address how do you get from here to there so having covered that what how do you visualize what there looks like the inner source utopia. Yes, yes um, inner source utopia. That's good. So, I actually saw it at Heroku. Uh-huh. Heroku was was really good at at, um, at using inner source as a, as the way that they did software. But my guess is that they designed the company from the ground up that way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And it was great because uh, I knew where the source code for everything in the whole entire system was. Uh, it was very easy to identify who the people I needed to talk with were. Um, it, so the, the communication channels to other teams were, were transparent. Um, the, the, there was just an openness to, for others to collaborate that you don't necessarily get in, uh, in traditional models. Where if I would open an issue on a on a project or uh, or create a pull request, even then then people were you know excited to have an outside perspective and um, so culturally, yeah, it was very different than I think most organizations. And I, I think that I think you're right that that culture was established up front, which which made it easier for. It made it just the this is water kind of way that things work there. Like it'd be hard to imagine things working differently. Um, so, yeah, I, I I think I think your your point for me is that I'm going to be talking to a traditional enterprise, and I think I need to put a lot of thinking into the transition, how the transition can happen, and and really its cultural transition, and ultimately is it even possible is it even possible is it you know because uh i mean you could even argue that the world wars were the transition from aristocracy to uh democracy and capitalism yeah and that's why they were so bloody is because you know there were people who didn't want to lose their way of living yeah because it was good for them yeah and this new system 
didn't have a place for them. Yeah. And so. So I'll go to this company and say, fire all your managers and then you can make this work. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, and that's, that seems dumb too, because there's a lot of knowledge that they have that could be repurposed. But there, I mean, when, um, even, even, uh, Zappos, when they changed, so they had, a. I think the problem with that is that they didn't really have a traditional hierarchy. Zappos was already a weird company, mm. but when they changed to um, Holacracy for a year, and then they decided to change to uh, this, the reinventing organizations, Teal, they call it a Teal organization. When they did that, you, they, they still ended up at some point saying, okay, after we've done this, if there are people who want to leave, we'll pay you a, a bonus to yeah. leave. And I don't remember what it was. You know, it was 10 or 15 or 20 percent of people decided that they didn't like it, yeah. which I would still I mean, and the press made a big deal of that. But I would say, well, most companies lose that amount of people. I mean, you know, there's a far number of large, attrition, number, yeah. just attrition, just on a normal basis so it wasn't that big of a deal and they were left with people who really wanted to be be part of this system so it allowed that transition to happen which i think was was very smart yeah Yeah. um and so you know maybe there is a way to do that and and say okay even and even paying that bonus for the people who wanted to leave seems like a, a cost but what is the cost of having people in your system who don't like it and her maybe you're actively fighting against it yeah I, I would argue maybe a lot more yeah um that that it's it's hidden yeah. within the structure so you don't you can't easily put a number on it whereas mm. you can put a number on this bounty for leaving mm. and so people can look at it and go oh see that's too expensive but they it's it's that uh, measurability yeah, issue yeah. that comes up again and again. Yeah, I like the idea of identifying what are the what are the hidden values in our current system, mm-hmm. and I think that that's that may be a useful tool because, like you're saying, a lot of times we just don't recognize like here's actually what we value. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And making it explicit, I think, is really important. And to me, if you were starting an organization to say, well, like like this little consulting firm that I have are, well, the one clear value that we have is that we want to maximize programmer happiness. And we so all of the things that we do work around that. You know, is this is this making you happy or not? Yeah. And like one of the things we have is there's no fixed hours you work when you feel like working and when you don't feel like working you stop working and this is from my own experience it's like if i try and work when i don't feel like working i don't produce either either i don't produce anything or i don't produce anything that's particularly good yeah and so it's actually beneficial to stop working when you stop feeling like working and then and then you don't like drag yourself through the mud and feel bad about your you know your job and you know eventually you start you know it's like oh i'm not i'm not feeling it now i'm gonna stop i'm gonna go do something else and that keeps people from burning out and it keeps them engaged in their work and everything but it's a hard sell to an organization which is built around consistency and um, watching over people and making sure that, you know, somehow that they're evaluating what that person is doing. Yeah. When very often a manager doesn't have enough knowledge to be able to understand what somebody is doing and what whether it's good or not. Only their peers actually understand yeah. that. But it's what we've always done. Yeah. So we keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So well that's helpful. It'll it'll be interesting to see what the how this presentation goes and cuz what's a while back there was I think a lot more uh kind of developer community energy into talking about intersource and it kind of faded over the last few years. 
And I wonder if part of the reason why it faded was because people realized it was hard to like get to go get from where they are to inner source. Uh, or maybe they didn't fully embrace that, that we needed to talk about transition and what was needed to make that transition or something. So I'm curious as to like, why, why that, um, why that's fit. So how is, what is the difference between open source and inner source? Is inner source just open source, but inside a company? Yep. Okay. So the structure and everything is all there. It's just that you're trying to bring in. So it really is totally a cultural change. It's not, there's no technology change at all. Yeah. Yeah. But your argument, I suppose, would be that it's a better, more productive way of producing software. Uh, I would say that. I would also say that um, that it's a better way for developers to grow because I think oftentimes in the traditional development model, we get pretty siloed into the people that we work with and the types of problems that we solve. And we don't often see from, we don't op- often get other perspectives on, on how a problem could be solved or uh, kind of what the new thinking is around something and that kind of thing. So I'd say it helps us grow by having diversity of inputs. So that's another interesting thing because what pops into my head when you say that is well, what is preventing that from happening in the traditional, the traditional source? And I would say, well, the idea of an architect, because hmm. the architect is the experience. It's the person who is granted. They say, you have the experience, you have the knowledge, so you make these decisions. And sometimes people can't question those. Yeah. Very often that's the case, I think. Yeah. yeah. And so there's another person who you're robbing of their role yeah is the architect because you're saying well we're distributing the idea of of architectural decisions as well yeah yeah and anything can be questioned and so yeah and i've seen companies where the architect has that kind of really strong control ivory tower very uh, ivory tower. Very. I've been part of a number of architecture summits where it's yeah. all the architects get together and talk about how things should be, and then they go decree it to their to their people. Well, EJBs came from an ivory tower perspective, yeah. and look how much that cost. Yeah, the whole world cost billions of dollars <laughs> right. because it was not really yep. as practical as they thought yeah. it was. Yeah, so I could see architects feeling threatened by the idea of inner source mm-hmm. yeah interesting yeah you're, um you're gonna have to put your armor on i think <laughs> well they actually asked me to come and talk about this so it, i guess there is interest in from them in this and maybe they're looking for insight into how how to do it mm-hmm. um uh, I think developer productivity is a huge benefit to InterSource because the, in many organizations, things this, basically the same things get written over and over by different teams. And, and so being able to have a better sharing model uh, can, can help increase productivity. So, so I think there's some really good reasons for InterSource. Um, it also, I think, helps people follow some best practices around, like, uh, as an example, when you, if you're doing InterSource well, anybody should be able to check out your project and build it and test it. And mm. so often in, in non-InterSource organizations, it is impossible for some random developer to check out a project and build it and test it. So you don't, you can't develop trust in it. And see, that's part of the, this is part of what's problem with, um, with an organization. Because when, long ago, when I was, uh, when, like my first kind of organization job was at this company called Fluke, where we made these multimeters. 
And I remember that was one of the things that they wanted to do. They said, we, you know, people keep writing code over and over again. But if you think about it, it's like within a small world, if you can't, how, how do you develop trust in a piece of code? In the big open source world, you look around and people go, oh yeah, this thing is the great thing. Yep. And you get, you get this unbiased, well, it's not unbiased. I mean, they've already yeah. decided that they really like that. But you get this kind of there is a feedback voting system, yeah. and and it's like, oh yeah, there's all these different solutions to this problem. But this open source project is like, oh yeah, they did and such a great job. It's based on people's experience. It's based on experience, and you and typically it's something you can say, oh well, I'll just look at the GitHub repo. Oh, it's being maintained regularly. Right. I can check it out. I can run the tests. I have all these other people. But within a company, you don't. I you could get maybe a recommendation, but it doesn't have that. Lots of people have tried it. That right. that you know usage thing, and you go, oh yeah, that looks like that's going to save me time. You don't know that. Yeah. You don't know. It could be a big waste of time, and you could dig in and discover, oh, the person who wrote this did a kind of mediocre job, or maybe they didn't know what they were doing, or they didn't solve the problem you needed to solve. Yeah. And so. Boy, yeah, I'm coming up with all these uh, skepticisms of of why why open source works and inner source might not work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but the, but I think you're right. If if it is if it's designed the way open source is, and it's like, well, here's the tests, and here's the yep. you know here here's a bunch of examples of how you use it. Here's right. documentation, right. Yeah, all that exactly. kind of stuff. Yeah. But in a company. You know, it's like, well, it's working. It solves our problem. Do we need to do all the rest of that stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Are the are the incentives there? Yeah, are the incentives there exactly? Yeah. And I, but it, but I think if it is cultural, if it's something that is culturally valued, then you do those things, and then it works. But like at Heroku, it totally worked. Like projects were documented, projects were able to be checked out and built and tested by anyone. And so, okay. um, so you have an example of where it worked, which yeah. is really important. Yeah. But again, that example came from building the organization from the ground. That's why I wasn't that. there at the beginning, but that's yeah. my, that's my, well, I, I, I would that guess I that's the that only, that, I mean, this is just my bias that that's the only way it can work. Yeah that uh, that it would be really hard to repurpose an existing company. Well, so this this company that I'm presenting to, uh, I will have to check back with them in a year and be like, so how's it going? <laughs> it's, yeah, and did you actually do this? Yeah. Yeah. So it, there, I think there's a lot of parallels between this and microservice architecture too, mm. because I think that, that in the same way that InnerSource is a cultural change, microservices are a cultural change, and very much kind of the s same cultural changes are needed. And I think this is why a lot of people that have tried to go to microservices have ultimately failed, is that they didn't they didn't change the culture in the right way. And so you've probably heard the term um, uh, micro microlith i think is one of them it's this idea that you've yes you've done microservices but essentially you've just created a really complicated monolith oh and and so this happens i think a lot is that people are like yeah microservices let's do it it's going to make everything better but they don't they don't change the culture and so then what they get is essentially just a really complicated monolith that uses a lot of network communication, but has to all be deployed at the same time. And this is, that's like the major um, litmus test of, a, of a, a distributed monolith or microlith or whatever it's called, is that if you, have to if you have to deploy the whole thing at once, you don't really have microservices. You've just got this distributed monolith. This reminds me of way back in the days of structured programming, where people were trying to, because they were still moving away from creating one big program. And so the idea is that, well, we're going to use functions now instead of just writing a single program. And so what I would see people do is that they would write a program that was one big function. Yeah. And it sounds, you know, cause yeah. it's like, oh, it didn't really get the, 
benefits yeah. get the idea here it exactly was, whereas netflix they have been very successful with microservices but i think that they had the culture for that from the beginning because their culture is very you know you've got this group doing this thing however they want to do it i mean it was already that way because because they could choose different languages yeah. within one group or another so it almost had to be microservices because yeah. there was like there was. How, how else do you plug those things together there was the system that supported it there mm -hmm. yeah whereas i think there's a lot of organizations who have this giant monolith and they're like let's go microservices but they don't change anything about their culture and so it just becomes the distributed it's monolith what gerald weinberg said his his most famous statement no matter what they tell you it's always a people problem <laughs> yeah because yeah. we want it to be a technology problem. It's like, no, no, but we have the technology. I mean, the, the, the you know, the same thing. Because I think part of the reason for Agile is that it's supposed to make people more productive, right? Mm. So, mm. and that appeals, you know, I want, I want greater productivity because then we'll make more money. But I don't want to change anything else. Can we just get the greater productivity without changing anything else? Yeah. yeah. And so I think, you know, that's something you're going to see. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting. So, so you're, it sounds like you're pretty negative on the ability to change the culture to, in, in any of these ways, whether it's, whether it's agile, whether it's microservices, whether it's inner source, like can, can organizations change or is it just futile? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think some of them can change. But it's, it's so, like, we're dealing with things that are not even, I mean, like, we're dealing with, with patriarchy and, you know, these hierarchical power structures and things like that. And there's a lot of, res I mean, they were designed specifically to keep things the same. You know, we, the hmm. traditional industrial age organization was at its core is not changing we're we're gonna make pencils we're gonna make a lot of pencils and they got to be the same so we're gonna set this thing up or value of the system or hidden value of the system is stability it is i don't even know if it's hidden i think it was explicitly designed you know we're a machine we're gonna crank these things out and we're gonna tweak things to make that a little more efficient but the basic structure of the machine is going to stay the same and it's a command and control structure and so that's why I, you know, I don't want to say, oh no, it's impossible, but it sure seems like everything that I look at s says that, well, you're, I mean, what you're talking about here is basically flattening an organization. Everything that I see here says, well, you're, f you're going to be, the people who are in power have a vested interest in not doing what you're suggesting. Yeah. That's the way it comes across. And so to me, the only the easy path, the happy path is going to be saying, okay, let's start a new organization and we'll base it on these, these foundational principles and we'll go from there rather than trying to take an existing organization. And it, one of the fascinating things about reinventing organizations is it doesn't say, oh, well, this structure and this approach is bad and the the new one is right it looks at it as an evolution it goes oh well when you were tribal having a tribal chieftain who made decisions that made sense but then when the world when the environment changed and you wanted to you know do something like you know we got agriculture and so now we got a lot more people we got to do things differently and then this other thing arose and it worked better than that and working better than that i think is the is the way of doing you know is the is a better way of looking at it because then you don't just go back and look at all oh, the all those things are wrong and this is right just oh this works better than that and then maybe something else can come yeah. along that works better than that but so it also allows those organizations to continue to exist as long as they're um you know sort of working sort of fulfilling their need so a hierarchical organization we still have them schools are are hierarchical organizations and they you know they sort of work there there's a, certainly we, a lot of stability and... there's a lot of stability there's a lot of yeah 
you know, and it sort of works. So it, we now see that, oh, things probably need to be a lot better. And so maybe we need to change that structure. But for a long time, even when there was other structures coming along, it still sort of works. And it's the same with, um, you know, some other types of organizations. But then the new kind of organization fulfills a different need. And so I think when you're talking about inner source, you either need to have like a skunk works, but even that's a risk because somebody can always come in and go, ah, oh, we don't like this anymore. We're going to yeah. pull the plug on it or just say, here's how you would start a new organization um, built around inner source because yeah. Heroku did it. Yeah. And there's probably others. It's, one thing I'm thinking of is how a lot of organizations over the last, like, let's say five years or so, traditional enterprise companies created centers of innovation or centers of excellence or whatever it was, I think is a way to try to, maybe they recognize that they needed to make cultural changes, but couldn't do that within, within the, the traditional structure. And so they like, Oh, let's create this pocket of innovation. That's where the innovation happens. That's where the excellence is. Oh, that's been going on for a while. Those have mostly failed. Well, right, because you, 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 it's like, oh, the scary innovation's going to happen over here and we're going to benefit from it. And it's like, well, not that's not really going to work because the whole organization needs to be infused with yeah. innovative thinking and the command and control structure does not really... I mean, even the U.S. military for the long for a long time has been very oriented towards pushing responsibility down which is the opposite of old you know military organizations always oh the general makes all the decisions and no they they're always pushing down it's like we want the person to be because then you can make the decision fast huh. and based on the current situation so that I mean, even those guys yeah. are those, those people are, are are doing it differently because they see the benefits, huh. and but we still have a lot of of this hierarchical thinking built into our organization. And when and hierarchical thinking means that information has to flow up and then back down, and you've got the game of telephone going on. Everybody's putting their own spin on decisions it. Decisions down and. And the person at the top can only get a filtered version of what's actually going on. So, I mean, it's for... There's an efficiency in that. Because, that, you know, the CEO of a large company can't get all every single piece of information. Mm -hmm. So that so I can see, like, how... It's oh, it's essential. For, it's essential that yeah. it gets filtered. Right. But, <laughs> but, um, but in the process, it's like each person doing the filtering is putting their own biases on it. Mm -hmm. And so by the time it gets and to the top... And making themselves look good. <laughs> and making them... Yes, absolutely. Making making themselves look good. So, I mean, there's... And and for a structure where the environment is relatively stable, and it's like, yeah, people are going to... You know, our whole lifetime, people are going to need pencils. And so we're just going to keep making pencils. We're going to do it. We know how it works. We're going to do it this way. Any little change needs to go to the top. But then when things start changing faster and faster, and we see this in the lifetime of, of organizations, these big... That's why Kodak couldn't, couldn't change. Kodak basically... Kodak was in, built for stability. Yeah, and here, what's weird about Kodak is that they basically invented the digital camera yeah. and then said, no, we're not doing that. Yeah, I mean, they were like, they were the... I mean, if I remember correctly, they were the ones who came out with the very first digital camera and then the digital camera killed the company, yeah. uh, basically. And yeah. it's like, and it was because there were all these people going, yeah, but we have all this investment in chemicals and, and stuff. We're, yeah. we're a chemical company, so, you know, we don't do digital cameras. Yeah. And... And but I mean, and that's just one example. I mean, come the lifetime of companies has been shrinking. They don't last as long because, in my opinion, because they get stuck. They get designed to do one thing, and then that one thing goes away, and they can't change. Yeah. So it just doesn't work in a world where things are changing as fast as they are. Yeah. And so, those companies that don't want to, for example 
you know, go and see the benefits of how open source works and somehow participate in it, whether it's inner source or maybe it's just, I, I mean, my hope would be that they would say, let's, you know, if we're going to make something, let's make it an open source project and we'll use it for our product maybe, yeah. but it'll be an open source thing. Everybody will use it. Everybody will contribute to it. It will make the world better. Yeah. But I think that there is beginning to be more perspective from the organizational leaders, executives, that that the stability that they've built is hurting them. And so one of the buzzwords in technology right now is uh, application modernization. How do we modernize? How do we modernize our our infrastructure? How do we moder modernize our applications? Because they see like like Airbnb, like come out of the blue and all of a sudden like totally disrupt a whole market. And so I think they, they are beginning to recognize that the, the stability that they have is really hurting them. And so I think they're kind of grasping for, Oh, if we, if we just get this thing, then we can solve this. And so I think that's part of, as long as I'm still making the decision, that's, right. <laughs> that's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. 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 It's like, and I, need, I need modernization. Well, that kind of requires that you quit or do do something different. No, I don't need it that much. Yeah, it's it's a really. I mean, it's taken me many years to wrap my head around how to, how, you know, how how do you because you're you have to think completely differently about this. Another example is um, Malcolm Gladwell has this podcast called Revisionist History. And he's been looking at how do we decide who we put into jobs? And he kind of goes at it. I think he uses the term nihilistic that basically he can't, he can't know like interviews and all those things. So he just goes, ah, this person seems nice. We'll try them. And then he goes one step further in a different podcast where he says, look at the way we elect people. How do we as voters know anything about this person, whether they're going to do a I good job? Idea, yeah. And he says, he says, well, here's here's a different way of doing it. Um, take whoever is interested in the job and use random selection and, and to choose the, you know, the people who are going to be on this border committee or whatever, and then have a feedback system afterwards to see if they're doing okay and you know maybe somebody isn't working out and you select another person somehow but don't like assume it's it's this assumption that we know everything up front yeah that's that's this huge problem and it's like okay decision made it's done it, i mean this is one of the things that i learned with holacracy it was like when we make a decision we go well we have to make the right decision so we spend a lot of time and effort on this and then we're done with it and it's so much time and effort that we never want to revisit it and his approach was to say well let's reverse this let's make a really quick decision based on the only things we actually know and then be willing to revisit it if it's not working yeah. and it's like that's a that's a very you know and so yeah. but to get your head we're just you know we've been taught to do it this other way to to make sure that you don't make any mistakes yeah and it's like well that's not the way experimentation works you know yeah. you have to make lots of mistakes and that's where you learn from it and then you can kind of evolve your way to a good mm. decision so, so that's that's what i'll have to present is how to evolve your way to inner source mm -hmm. yeah yeah which is you have to do experiments and that and that's the only thing that i guess i could imagine taking an existing company and changing it is that kind of experimental approach if you have the attitude that okay we can do experiments and see what happens and then evolve our way towards a better way of doing things but again if they had that built in already they would have done it already. Yeah. So there is desire. So I'm not giving up hope yet. Oh no, no. I, I, did, I, I it, this could easily see. be something where I'm going, well, this is the way, you know, I've done a cursory, a cursory examination. It looks hopeless. I'm giving up. Whereas actually, 
no, I just didn't see there is a path, there is a way of getting there. Um, it's not easy. Like with your conferences. Exactly with the conferences. The, yeah. the conferences, the, the or, just organizational structures in general. Um, and it, it, But I don't know. Sometimes I get this sense of there's a solution. I can kind of smell it. It's around the corner. I can't see it. I don't know what it looks like versus, oh, this looks like a battle <laughs> that I've got, you know, people are going to be fighting tooth and nail and we see evidence of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, this is why Agile has not thrived is because people are fighting that change. They did, you know, ultimately it's, I didn't buy into this. This is not why I joined this company to do this thing. Yeah. And, um, and so they're going to, they're going to battle it because it's not, you know, their way of thinking. And so what you want to do is set something up where you go, here are our values. We're completely transparent about it. Our foundational principles are these things. If that doesn't agree with you, then um, uh, it's not a good fit, you know, and you know it up front. You know, you know, this isn't going to be a place that you want to play. Yeah. And, you know, it's like that. I, I, I'd love to to see a company that is that transparent because I have had experiences where I go in thinking that a company is a particular way and then you get in and discover, oh, that's not how we do things here. That's just our, um, you know, our mission statement. I mean, we had to have a mission statement, so we made one up that looked good, but we actually do things this totally different way. And so, um, oops, you made a mistake by joining us. And uh, wouldn't it be nice if if the mission statement or the you know the foundational principles were just out there and you're going, I I want to be part of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That was great. Okay. Thank that you. That was good. Thanks. <laughs>